0: This is Julian Charles of the Mindrenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. I recently had the opportunity to interview Mr. Dean Gotcher of the Institution for Authority Research, whose mission over the last 15 years or so has been to inform people about the dangers of dialectical thinking and practice in education and in our Western culture more generally. And it was one of those exhilarating conversations where there was almost too much information to take in. Mr. Gotcher has read a great deal about the subject, and he has one of those quicksilver minds out of which the information simply pours, and it's up to the listener to concentrate and keep up. So I warn you, you need to concentrate. And I know I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to anyway. You may even need to listen to it more than once. Another thing is... Much of the foundation for his thinking comes from the third chapter of the first book of the Bible, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, specifically the first six verses of Genesis chapter 3. But we didn't get onto the subject of how to interpret that story in terms of its historicity. Some read it as literal history, that there really was a garden, there really was a man called Adam, etc. Others read it as a symbolic narrative, that the whole story just is a symbol teaching us about the relationship between God, humanity, and creation. Some read it as a kind of complex mixture of the two, which, as it happens, is where I stand. But as I say, we didn't address that issue. We simply, as it were, inhabited the narrative to extract the teaching contained in the text. So wherever you stand on this issue, that's what I invite you to do as well. So please, I implore you, put aside all those questions about historicity just for a moment, and join us in inhabiting the narrative in order to follow the important points that Dean Gotcher has to make. So that's it. Without further ado, my interview with Mr. Dean Gotcher. Today is the 19th of November 2012, and I have on the line with me over the internet Mr. Dean Gotcher, who is the founder of the Institution for Authority Research, which he started in 1995, and which is concerned to research into the use of the dialectical process and praxis, particularly in education, but also in the workplace, government institutions, and the church in the United States of America. And he and his wife, Karen, regularly travel across the states giving lectures and seminars explaining this dialectical philosophy and practice, which he's called Diaprax. So, Mr. Gotcher, thanks very much for speaking with me on The Mind Renewed.
1: Thanks, Julian, for allowing me to share
0: Um, I wanted to have you on the podcast because I heard you speak on the Dr. Stan Monteith's radio show, Radio Liberty, a few years ago on this subject of diaprax, and I was particularly interested in what you had to say because a lot of it I felt chimed with my own experience of education, particularly in my initial period of ministerial training with the Methodist Church, and perhaps we'll get into that a little bit later. But first, could you explain what you mean by diaprax?
1: Well, it's a combination of two words, uh, the dialectic process, which I focus on in the meetings. Uh, and the word praxis, uh, which is combined to a diaprax, uh, is it's simply the Greek word for practice or to act out and to experience. And so what what I'm Responding to is is this dialectic process that's being now applied in literally every facet of our lives, and uh, not what only what it is, but how it affects us. And mm. I've, I had a chance, uh, an opportunity to do uh, research regarding it. I spent five years in university, just on my own. The Lord really led me into all this research, reading over 600 social psychology books, and that wasn't so much to torment myself, but to <laughs> literally know what this process is. So I I went went to the source and uh, read the, the, the bulwark of the men who have uh, used this dialectic process in the past, but as well as the men who have uh, worked it into a form that it can be applied literally everywhere in the world in any institution. Uh, and so that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years is covering uh, the states and explaining this dialectic process, uh, and it's mainly its effect – on education, but unfortunately now it's effect even in the church.
0: and you you explained how this has changed the way people think um, right. can, can you can you explain the history of how this actually came to be?
1: Well, it's I actually go into the scriptures. Genesis 3, 1 through 6 is the very process. You know, you'll never study that in a philosophy class because the obvious reason is you don't want to go to the scriptures for answers. You you want to go to human reasoning. Hegel's idea was reasoning is the ultimate. Uh, reasoning is the divine spark. It's the, the very essence of who we are. Uh, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. So our identity isn't found in any being greater than us in God or Uh, father's authority, but our identity is found within us, our very own nature. So the objective was how we can arrive at just pure man, how we can uh, demythologize ourselves of any authority that restrains, according to uh, Freud would be repression, uh, cause of alienation, causing division between men, between men. uh, Freud would consider it uh, the the source of neurosis, this belief in God, Uh, because today it would be called belief-action dichotomy. I I believe one thing, but I act contrary, and we we find that expressed in Romans 7 where Paul says, I do that which I don't want to do, and I don't do that which I want to do. Of course, his focus is on the law of God, which then reveals that I am in sin, but if you think human nature is not sinful, if you think human nature is just human nature – Uh, you have to reverse things. You have to say, actually, my trying to fulfill law is an act of sin. Uh, It is the cause of a guilty conscience. That is therefore the source of neurosis uh, in, in society. So how can I convince a society to put aside God and simply be human? And that was the agenda. Now, there were two men who are key to this thing coming together the way it has, uh, George Lukács and Karl Korsch. Uh, these were two Marxists uh, who, back in the early 1900s, went to the Marxist-Communist International uh, with a new form of Marxism. The, the, the traditional Marxists uh, could readily identify who you and I were, so they would know who to shoot. Uh, and, <laughs> and in these meetings, I explained that uh, because language directly ties to culture. Or to paradigms, uh, they call this a paradigm shift. Uh, we, we've changed our paradigm, the way we think and the way we act. Mm-hmm. The old traditional paradigm, the so-called old world order, has a language of is and not. In other words, uh, 2 plus 2 is 4 and cannot be any other number. Uh, This is my land, not your land. These are my children, not your children. We find this expressed in the garden, where God, in essence, is saying, This is my garden and not your garden. In other words, you're going to behave according to my standards. And that's the old school. It, it, It carried over into the business world. This is my business, not your business. And if you don't behave according to my standards, there's the door. Well, uh, the traditional Marxists simply would shoot uh, you if uh, they came into your house and you said, well, get out of my house. You know, who are you? Get out of my house. This is my house, not your house. They knew to shoot. Well, the problem was uh, with Lenin, there were so many people shot, eventually the lights went out. Uh, you know, the question was, who does anybody know how to run the power plant? You know, and, and he shot the infrastructure. Well, men like George Lukash. Uh, We're able to see how Sigmund Freud's way of thinking was dialectic as well. Marx was dialectic. Freud was dialectic. So they went to the Communist International with this new form of Marxism called transformational Marxism, not traditional. Because traditional is sort of a top-down system. Transformational seduces us into thinking we're all equal, not realizing there are some people more equal than others. And they're, they're, well, they were kicked out of the Communist Party because the idea was well, you can't have a revolution without bullets and blood. You know What are you going to do? Put people on couches and ask them about their dreams in their early childhood. And, and they response was basically yes. Well, they were kicked out. Uh, they met in Thrange, Germany, uh, started the first Marxist work week, uh, 1920s, and then ended up uh, 21 of these guys were meeting in Frankfurt, Germany, uh, 1933 the year Hitler became Chancellor. Well, most of those guys uh, ended up coming to the United States. Uh, Adorno uh, went to Berkeley, wrote a book called The Authoritarian Personality, which is a big read for the UN and then uh, Eric Fromm freely traveled the states. One author said Fromm made Marx lovable by the The liberals or today would be the democratic and unfortunately even the republican parties have all embraced a particular way of thinking, a paradigm, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's been the result of these men who had free reign in in our universities and our intellectual minds from the 30s on. Uh, Herbert Marcuse went down to San Diego. He wrote *Eros and Civilization*, one of the two Bibles of the '60s. Uh, the other one by Norman O'Brown, *Life Against Death*. If you really want to understand the merging of Freud and Marx, the synthesizing of the two, those are you know pretty. Ha- they're not big read, but uh, it took me a long time to get through them because every five pages or so you have to put them aside. Your blood pressure's getting up there. It's it just, uh, but it just it reveals how they thought, uh, how to accomplish this change in paradigm this change of thinking
0: so these thinkers um adorno from Marcuse, um you, you say that they were right very much influenced by karl Marx and freud and um th- that which is common to them is this dialectical thinking
1: right foundational
0: yeah so where, do, where does that dialectical thi- well two questions really where does it come from and wh- what is it how is it characterized
1: well, we can trace it all the way back. Uh, in fact, I trace it all the way back to the garden. Genesis 3, 1 through 6 is the, the – those six verses are the steps, the procedures of the dialectic process. But you can go back to Heraclitus, who's in, better Marx than Marx. Uh, you can study Aristotle, Plato. They all had different focuses in regards to it. Dialectic means there's two or more, and they're, they're, it's an, in an environment of dialogue. In other words, we're seeking for truth. But the problem is – Truth uh, from God has to be revealed. It cannot be understood from our sense experience. It has to be outside. There has to be a a revelation from God rather than from man. But since man without God has only himself, he's just simply going to use his feelings and his thoughts to come to uh, Cosmic consciousness, to to come from a state of consciousness through self-conscious. Consciousness would simply be you out in the field working, uh, aware of the environment around you, enjoying the day. But then self-consciousness is where now there's more than one of me. There's I, me, and myself. I'm doing what my dad told me to do, but self wants to be in town and so now i'm self-conscious i'd rather be doing something else and i'm caught in this uh this antithesis this conflict between my father's commands and my feelings and and therefore if i do what i want to do then i have a guilty conscience i literally have my father's brain in me and that's the threat of judgment you know accountability but if i do what he does then i can't be myself well the dialectic is we can use our reasoning if i can justify myself I can negate the effect of my, my guilty conscience upon me uh, because reasoning would convince me that my father is irrational, and if he's irrational, then he's irrelevant. And, and so the, the three steps of the dialectic are from a thesis, which is a position. Uh, that, that's referred to a traditional way of thinking, and there are, there are facets to this. Uh, there, there are conditions that I have to have, say, in a classroom. Uh, to maintain a traditional culture of is and not, you know, two plus two is four cannot be any other number, I have to have a structure, uh, a, a curriculum or an environment in the classroom where I have a teacher uh, up front who's preaching and teaching. And uh, that's not enough because you can tell your child to do something, and they can do it or not do it. it, it, it you know, if, if that's the only condition of just preaching and teaching, then they, they, they will rebel. So there has to be the condition of chastening. Uh, and we find that in garden garden. God said, you know, you can eat of all these trees. You cannot eat of that tree. And if you do, you'll die. Mm-hmm. And so therein we have a guilty conscience. Uh, if you think about it, doing something wrong, then your conscience kicks in. Or if you did it, then you, had, you have this guilty conscience. And, and so how to resolve this tension, this antithesis? Well, we find Satan approaching Eve, and he moved her from a preaching and teaching system – Which we even find in Jesus' life when he was tempted. He said, it is written, dad says, dad says, dad says. He's always referring to a higher authority. Father, you gave me these men. And then he says, what my father commands, that's what I do. And then he instructs us. He who does my father's will in heaven is my brother, sister, mother. That's a patriarchal paradigm. And he never steps out of that. But Satan comes in the garden and he gets Eve to share her opinion of God's word. And that's dialogue. Uh, your opinion carries your feelings. In other words, remember you're out in the field, you're doing what dad told you to do, but all of a sudden you have this sensation, this, this sensuous need, as Marx would put it, of uh, being yourself, not your dad, because you're just replicating your dad's uh, thoughts and actions, and which means you're, you really have no position in yourself. Your position, your justification for what you're doing is in your father's, in obedience to your father. It's not from your nature. And so, the only way then you can deliver yourself, be reconciled back to the, your nature, back to the world, is through dialogue. Because if I can think long enough about my condition and justify that I'm okay, you know, this I'm okay, you're okay mentality, uh, if it feels good, just do it. That was Herbert Marcuse, this Marxist, uh, Marcusa. If, if I can, in dialogue, participate in dialogue, because in dialogue, there's equality. See, in preaching and teaching, there's top down. And in fact, uh, the man who came up with quantum physics, he he did an excellent explanation between discussion and dialogue. Because discussion is, son, come here, we're going to discuss your behavior. I don't remove myself from an authority position. But in dialogue, there's no position of authority. We're all equal.
0: So the original command in the uh, the story of the Garden of Eden then is that the, the father is actually saying, this is what should be, and there can be dis- there can be discussion because I've given you the ability to understand, and so you can see that you should not do this, and you should do, should do that, and we can walk in the garden together and walk and talk. But at this point where there is the, the sin conceived, there is no longer discussion. There is this completely this worldly dialogue where any, right. any any transcendent truths from above, as it were, are just kept out of the picture altogether.
1: Right. They're negated. They call it negation of negation because the, the negation is what prevents me from being myself, and the negation is obedience to my Father. Uh, and I tell people, I understood righteousness, I thought, to a point when I read Scripture, but it wasn't until I studied Karl Marx that I truly understand the system of righteousness. Adam... Did not have a righteousness in himself. Uh, righteousness is from God because it has to be imputed. Uh, our faith in God, righteousness imputed. But when God gave him a command, you know, do this, don't do that, and a threat of chastening, therein God introduced, at that moment, God introduced righteousness to him. Because when Jesus said, for instance, I'm it's expedient, I'll go be with the Father, and He, we will send the Holy Spirit. In the middle, he says, and the Holy Spirit will reveal righteousness because I go to be with the Father. So a way of righteousness is always a top-down, I'm obeying my Father way of thinking. Now, yeah, what's
0: yeah, the but it's, the, but it's, not, it's not an unthinking Obedience, is it? I mean, one of the things which I think people don't understand about that chapter of Genesis is they think it's the eating of the tree of knowledge, and it's not, is it? It's eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is a a crucial distinction because when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're deciding in your own eyes what you consider to be good and evil. You do have knowledge, you're given that ability to understand, and you're given knowledge that you should eat of this tree but not that.
1: What, What we have, what God gave us that we are equal with Him, is evaluation. Uh, we are to evaluate our life from God's word. That's what they were to do in the garden. They were to evaluate whatever was around, you know, good tree, bad tree, based upon what God said. Yeah. But they used that ability to evaluate from their own feelings, and see that's where our, our opinion comes in because in, in a dialoguing of our opinions, there's equality. When Satan got Eve into, and he used a sentence structure known as neurolinguistics, most powerful sentence structure in hypnosis. Uh, Yea, hath God said, Thou shalt not eat of every tree in the garden. It's an embedded statement in a question. Uh, In the Hebrew, we don't even know how to end it, you know, whether it ends with a period of question. It's just pure. For example, if I would ask you, I wonder whether you know where your knee is. Now, your conscious mind just picks up that I'm thinking with my mouth open. I wonder whether it's going to rain. But I pick a body part because I want to sensitize you. That was the role of dialogue is to bring you into feelings domain, move you from cognitive, just facts way of thinking. Your conscious mind picks up, I'm just being cognitive, I, I'm just talking. But the affective picks up, yeah, I know where my knee is. And you can actually feel yourself starting to look at your knee, but your conscious mind kicks in and says, no, I didn't ask you to look at your knee. If you know, if you look at your knee, everybody else will know you weren't paying attention. But internally, you go, well, it is my knee, I can look at my knee any time I want to. And what I've done in that uh, scenario is I have produced tension. I, I've produced a two-headed monster. because. Part of you wants to obey the one who gave the command, or is thinking, and the other one wants to follow the feelings, and it's called this cognitive dissonance uh, situation. You're caught between belief and behavior, and the only way you can resolve that is be continue to stare at me, but feel your knee, and and so you have to realize. Uh, in meetings, I I don't know if I have time today to get into it, but I explained the the neurotransmitter in a body, which is called. Uh, These are chemicals our body produces to convey information to our brain and in our brain. Uh, One of them is dopamine. It's a – when you touch something, it's pleasurable. You don't know it. The nerve is activated. And partway to the brain, it it connects with another nerve. And in that that gap, they call it synaptic gap, chemicals are released. And in this case, the neurotransmitter, dopamine. Now, all habitual drugs are tied to dopamine. Including caffeine, caffeine, tobacco, uh, but all the, all the drugs. So what they do is they prevent reuptake. They imitate it. They prevent it from breaking down, and so there's just a continual impulse of pleasure. And this is true in the brain because you have a trillion neurons, give or take a few, and and some of those nerves will have 10,000 dendrites, which means they can connect with a lot of other nerves, and there are little gaps, synaptic gaps between those. And so you get a big dose of dopamine in your brain. Well, when that gets into your brain, you become aware of this pleasurable experience that you touched or tasted or whatever the five senses are. came in contact with in the environment. And so then it's not enough just to have that awareness. You want to acquire it. So you have to identify where it's at. And so you look into the environment and you find it, that gratifying object, the object that stimulated the dopamine. And then it's not enough just to see it. You want to acquire it. Because if I can hold it in my hands, if I can maintain it, uh then I can guarantee more dopamine stimulation. And so every time that Adam and Eve are going by that tree of knowledge, good and evil, They were getting dopamine from the other trees, uh, but they got dopamine from that tree as well just by seeing it. Uh, I tell people, you know, you like the smell of fresh baked bread. That you had a dopamine moment. Uh, You see, you like beautiful sunsets. That's dopamine. God gave us this chemical in our body that we would enjoy the creation, or uh, you know, somebody compliments you. I I tell people, you tell your wife, those are beautiful shoes. That's two days worth of dopamine for your wife. (laughs) You know, it's just that we need that. In fact, God said it's not good that man be alone, and part of our relationship is this pleasure we get from this relationship. But the the problem is that God has said we're not to be lovers of pleasure more. And lovers of God. And so I have to if I'm going to seduce and deceive and manipulate you, I have to create an environment, uh, a curriculum in, you know a classroom or a workplace environment where you are easily uh, liberated from the fear of God so you can be yourself and the essence of yourself is relating with the world. Being at one with the world. I used to call it world peace. Now I call it worldly peace or socialist, social harmony, and I call it socialist harmony because it has to be manipulated. Somebody has to seduce you with this nature that you have, deceive you, and say you can trust me. We care about you, and then manipulate you. And I, I you know, I ask mm-hmm. people how many of you woke up this morning saying, well, I can't hardly wait to be manipulated. And yet we live in a culture that you are of no worth unless you are manipulatable. Uh, and so that's what happened in the garden. Satan came along, uh, the first facilitator, which means make change easy, and uh, he manipulated them, uh, liberated them from this neurosis in their, their life, this obedience to God who prevented them from being themselves. And so when she then responds to this neuro-linguistic sentence structure, she doesn't say tree. Uh, God said tree. Adam, or Satan said tree, but she goes fruit of the tree, so th- this stuff really worked. Her opinion is for God has said, "Thou shalt not eat of it," and then we hear, "Nor touch it." So now we know that that's her opinion, because your opinion carries your feelings, not the Father's commands. See, Jesus said, "It is written, it is written, written." He just simply states, "Here's what Dad says," but she's sharing her feelings in regards to that, because every time they're going by that tree of knowledge of good and evil, dopamine's being emancipated. Now they don't eat of it. Why? Because there's a fear of God There's a consequence for disobedience They don't know what it is But there's still this awareness So when she says, for God has said, thou shalt not eat of it Nor touch it, now we're in transition Lest ye die And then Satan says, you won't die And she should have said Will too, will not, will too, will not You know that, where the kids get together and do that And you're about ready to strangle one of them Uh, She should have continued this antithesis But she didn't And the key is when, when I tell my child he's heading to the door, go play with his friends, get some dopamine, you know, just have a good time, and I say no, you can't go out. That's preaching and teaching, and I'm blocking off his natural, his human nature. And the only way he can deliver himself from my that top-down way of thinking is to get me into dialogue. And so I tell people children come as geniuses. They, they go, they go, why? Now, they're not asking why in regards to where you say, well, birds fly. Why? Because they have wings. Why? Because God created them. Why? You know, They're asking why to move me from my paradigm. They're wanting me to get into dialogue because if I get into dialogue with them, there's no top-down system. We're equal. And so, if I respond, then all of a sudden we're into this open ended, non directed environment. So, how I can o- the only way I can stop that is to restore my authority. I authored something, cannot now I have to maintain my authority. And I use the phrase because I said so. And Marx understood this I'm in essence presenting myself as a God in a sense that I'm over my children. Because I said so means I caused to be, I'm the creator, you're the created. In other words, you obey me, and there's a sense of force. There's a sense of accountability in there. Marx wrote 11 Thesis on Feuerbach. Number four, I think, is really the most important. Everybody quotes the 11th one, and it's about change. But the fourth one, he says, once the earthly father – see, the earthly father says you can't go out. We go why to get him out of it. And then he says, because I said so. It's discovered to be the secret of the heavenly father. Same paradigm. The earthly father must be annihilated theoretically and practically. In other words, in the thoughts of the children and in the actions of the children.
0: I see. So he very, very clearly saw the analogy there with God the Father. That's very interesting.
1: Freud as well. He's And this is the tie. He says it's not a matter whether the Father's alive or not. He just no longer functions as a Father figure. So how can I undo the effect of the Father? Well, it was through dialogue. Because once he said, you won't die, now, here's, let me back up a moment and just say, when dad says you can't go out, we go, why? He goes, because I said so. We can no longer talk to, to higher authority. We have to do what they've told us to do. They're restraining us from our human nature. So we talk to ourselves and we go, well, I ought to be able to go out. Oughta, shoulda, mighta, coulda is the language of rebellion against authority.
0: And then, and then then bring, bringing the uh, the Garden of Eden back into that, then at that particular moment, then, you have the Satan actually saying, well, how do you feel about that in the background?
1: Well, yeah, yeah, hath God said, that's subconscious, but she says, nor touch it. She's saying, I ought to be able to touch it. Mm. See, that's and how if, I feel. I, yeah. if I can get your ought out. See, you don't have an ought. This is Hegel. You don't have an ought without first having a not. So he says, you need the parent. You need the parent who irritates you who produces dissatisfaction because philosophy only begins when you're dissatisfied with the way things are and it forces you therefore to think about how the world ought to be and so if i it's necessary therefore for us according to dialectic thinking to actually have this this antithesis condition between the father's command and the children's feelings uh their their nature of just doing you know impulsive natural inclination with the world and that's how they see it. They don't. They, they see man as uh, maladjusted uh, when he's obeying a something that is not of nature. And so therefore, once she says, nor touch it, her ought comes out. Then she says, lest ye die. There's the dad's not. But then Satan says, you won't die. He took her in a safe zone. He Like a teacher. As a teacher, I would tell the students when we started talking about subject, one of the students would say, well, my dad wouldn't approve of this. I say, you know, they paid for me to be here, and this is okay. That child is not going to go. Well, you know, I, do, I still don't want to participate. No, because that's that child's ought to be. Your ought to be is the real you in rebellion to any restraint to your nature. And so if I can create, as Maslow said, we have to create an environment of oddiness. If I can create – and see, our legislators going to subcommittees. You want them to represent your position. In other words, you want them to be heartless. Now, that sounds cruel, but you voted for them to represent cannot, must not, thou shalt not. But if I get them in a room and share – get them to share their ought to it's their heart that now rules. And the Bible says the heart is deceitful, so I can deceive your elected officials. And it's also wicked. And so if I can liberate that heart, that oughta, shoulda, mighta, coulda – in rebellion to cannot must not thou shalt not, I then can create a new world order. Postmodernism means there's no reference point. Mm-hmm. We're cut loose. We're free. We we can what well, if it feels good, just do it. You know, and make sure everybody else is enjoying it too. And so then she she says you won't die. He says you won't die. And from there on she's godless. See in a class if, if your parents says take the garbage out. And you say, why? And they say, because I said so. And you take it out. Now, in the classroom, I could ask the students, have you ever been told to do something you didn't want to do? I took every child into that home. And, and and then we can talk about it, our feelings, how we felt. Because my dad never said, take the garbage out and then asked me, how do you feel about it? But in the garden, we actually we actually find Satan doing that. He's saying, well, how do you feel about this? Well, I ought to be able to touch it, but, you know, unless you die or you won't die. And then she's thinking, because this is Hegel's reasoning. Now we have to justify that our relationship with the world is more important than the position anybody has given us because it's not our position, it's our father's position. So we're we're abnormal. We're not normal human beings. This is the, the foundation of Marx, you know, communism. Uh, in fact, she does communism. She looks at all the other trees and she looks at that tree of knowledge, of good and evil, and she goes, they're common. Commonism. There's nothing wrong with that tree. It's good for food, and she was right. Scientifically, if God had never shown up in that garden again, they'd still be there. The tree of knowledge, good, and evil didn't kill them. God removed them from the tree of life. And so academically, she was correct. These trees are good for food. God said all the trees are good for food. And that tree was good for food. So there's dopamine. It's pleasing to the eyes. There's dopamine. Now we have less flesh, less the eyes, and desires to make one wise. What that means is if I can control the environment, I can guarantee the dopamine. So that tree produced just as much dopamine as all the other trees. Therefore, I can control it and have just as much pleasure as the other. The issue wasn't the tree didn't kill them. What killed them was they changed their paradigm. They changed their paradigm where they evaluated from sensuousness, from their carnal human nature – Rather than from righteousness, from God's word, from his command. And so the justification now was no longer found in God, but their justification for their thoughts and actions was now found in relationship with the world. I mean, right there in those six verses is a perfect description of the dialectic process. And it wasn't enough just to be aware of it. And feel a relationship with it and to justify because that's what she did. She justified. Uh, she was godless. She was the first – in fact, I tell people she was the first environmentalist. She was the first tree hugger. <laughs> if you look at systems, she was. And Adam, by the way, he just simply looked at Eve and he goes, you know, I like her. God, I choose her over you. He was the first humanist. That whole scenario, we, there's nothing new under the sun. And, and And then when they ate of it, see, that was praxis. Marx criticized Hegel because he stayed intellectual. He he just said, "Okay, it, it, the spirit is out there." Marx said, could, "Get rid could of you, spirit."
0: Yeah, you brought up um, uh, Hegel a number of times. Uh, could you explain what what the dialectical process of Hegel actually was?
1: Well, there I look at their quotes, uh, and 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 they were revealing. And the whole the whole thing is about the Father. Everything, even in Scripture, we we find the focus is on the Father. I, and don't misinterpret me, but um, to just to get the point across, Jesus didn't come because he loved us. He came because he loved the Father. It's the Father who sent the Son that reveals the love. See, the prodigal son, when he went home, he, he went home because he thought the Father's love was in his inheritance. No, his inheritance was in his Father's love. See, that that was that's the message of the gospel mm. is that Jesus is saying, I want you to meet my Father. But if we reject the Father… As a system, uh, which means we, we, we have to obey and we can't, and which that, that's why Jesus came. You know, the message is you can't obey, you know, because righteousness isn't in you. It's not in your nature to obey. So you have to die to yourself, you know, to deny yourself that lust for the flesh, lust of the eyes and pride of life and pick up your cross, which simply means you have to also put aside the approval of men. Because, uh, you know, your friends don't put you on a cross. It's They might like you, but you're, you're irritating them. They don't want you around anymore, and so when you walk around preaching and teaching the truth in a world that's dialoguing, they don't want you around. That's why you go in a town hall meeting or you go anywhere, and you start this is right and that's not. It, you can be offering good to people; they are, th- th- it has nothing to do with what you're offering them. It's the, your language, it's your mm. paradigm. You, you're 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 an irritant. You're you're a pain in their life. They're trying. They're looking for pleasure. Now, getting to Hegel, okay. he writes in uh, his uh, systems of ethical life. He writes, the child, contrary to parents, is the absolute, the rationality. He is what is enduring and everlasting, the totality. So the child before the father's first command and threat of judgment is true human nature. And then he proceeds for equality. He says, on account of the absolute and natural oneness of the husband, the wife, and the children. See, he removed a concept that we get from the scriptures and understanding. Husbands rule, because God told Adam, rule. You know, don't blame your wife you're the fault because later we find him going well God is not my fault it's a woman you gave me it's her fault He's look at liberals always saying oh somebody else's fault it's your parents fault it's there's no personal accountability because you you think everything's equal and therefore somebody didn't hold their end up and therefore you failed but with God is on the day of judgment I tell people there's no group grade you and I are personally accountable for him for our thoughts and our actions. But Hegel changes that. He says the, the absolute and natural oneness of the husband and the wife and the children where there is no antithesis, no top down, no right, wrong of person person or subject to object, then this is more Marx and Marx. He says the surplus or the property is not the property of one of them since their indifference is not a formal or logical one. So therefore you can't say mine, not yours. You can't say these are my children. Not your children. See, because the, the environmentalists come by your property and he'll see those trees on your property and you say, well, I have to cut some of those trees to pay some bills. No, you can't cut those trees because that now the, the village owns that. Every time the village comes down, the village is in your brain now. What will the village think whenever I do something on my own land?
0: Yeah, this is a communitarian thinking, isn't it, which yeah. Hegel is very central to. Yeah. Yes, indeed.
1: Yeah, all of it. It all fits together. Environmentalism, uh, you know, the whole new world globalist mindset is, is we're one big happy family. We don't know where we're going, but we're having a good time going there.
0: Oh, well, that's interesting. We don't know where we're going. But um, my understanding of Hegel's thought in in this respect was, as you say, he doesn't believe in any absolute commands coming from above, as it were. But right. he, d- he does believe in the in the gradual growth of an absolute, which he defines as an historical process, which is is uh, through this. It's a system. S- yes, that's right. A, a synthesis that's continually moving. Yes, yes, a process.
1: Now, now the Soviets, uh, which which copied the director of the French Revolution. Which we go to Rousseau and Robespierre, all these guys. But but the the, the Soviet system, it, you have to have a diverse group of people. Follow sort of the system of the MER, the, the farming system in the Soviet Union. Or old Rus, Russia. Uh, you have a diverse group of people, which we all have. We we all come into the room with our differing opinions, you know, our our position on things. Marx, that's that 11th thesis. On Feuerbach, he said the philosophers, you and me, have all interpreted the world in many different ways. In other words, we come in the room, this is right, that's wrong, and we conflict all that. He said the objective, however, is to change. This was the criticism that Marx had with Hegel was this rigidity. But but Hegel understood it's the system that was it. So the diverse group that we have dialoguing – now in the dialogue, we've removed top-down to a consensus, a feeling of oneness – Now, it's not so much that we're going to fix the bridge. It's that we're going to have 20 meetings to fix the bridge because it's the consensus, this feeling, this sensation of oneness, unity, that is the desired outcome. Well, actually, beyond that, there's something else to that that desired outcome. Uh, Over social issues, everything has to be material. It has to be measurable in a facilitated meeting, which means you have to have an expert there because this does not happen naturally. All the books say that. Now, I go, okay, if these guys are naturalists, then why are we using a system that's not natural? But, uh, you know, in the garden, we find something that's not natural. It didn't come from their nature because their nature, they never would have eaten the tree of knowledge, good and evil. Some facilitator had to come into the garden and help facilitate change. I tell people, if you want to be a good facilitator, read Genesis 3, 1 through 6 and put it into praxis. That's all you've got to work with. And then what's the predetermined outcome? Is that you don't solve any problem, solve any crisis in your community, without getting a diverse group of people together, dialoguing to consensus over social issues in a facilitated meeting. It's the
0: system. It, that is absolutely exactly what I experienced in that theological training, which I, I mentioned to you when I emailed you in the first place. Right. Because we were in that theological college, we would we would have a lecture situation with 20 or 30 people, we'd break up into groups of five or six, we'd have some issue that we had to discuss, and it was consensus Right, that was what we had to reach. It didn't really matter what the truth was about the issue we were concerned with. It was consensus, and the, the the lecturer was even called the facilitator.
1: Right, and 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 Hegel put it this way: purposiveness without purpose and lawfulness without law. Now, I read these sentences twenty times over and get a headache. You know, it, but it wasn't until I went to the German and I recognized the the uh, prefix. You know, the, in the English it'd be the nes. Uh, hyphen NES, which means quality. So if we have purposiveness without purpose and lawfulness without law, you as an object really serve no purpose. It's the sensation I get from you that we find identity. It's that feeling of oneness that mm-hmm. where reality lies. So I can take your picture and get rid of you. This is This is lethal. I mean this is where you get to a certain age. You better be concerned if your kids are thinking this way because if that money in the bank is dopamine money, that, that's pleasure of the future, and you're spending it on you, and they can't spend it on them. They're going to pull the plug. Because you're you're worthless. You as a person are worthless if you don't contribute to society. We in our nation are dealing with this this healthcare uh, program, and the advisor to leave our nation uh, actually says if a person is where they can no longer contribute to society, we shouldn't give them any any physical help. You know, I'm going. Wait a minute. During World War II, we were aghast when the Germans would take our soldiers because they you know they were to take food from the their, the German soldiers and you know taking care of them, they'd shoot them. That's the same principle. It is this horrendous stuff and yet for some reason because we feel like we're going to get something out of it for ourselves, we tolerate it.
0: That's actually been called the Hegelian pragmatic morality, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, it's 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 abomination. It, it's it is where the human themselves have no value outside of the village, outside of the collective. Mark said that individualism actually destroys you. It's only you in the community. you working with the, the many, the many becoming one through the consensus that we actually have identity.
0: Yeah. Well, in my little sort of microcosm of experience, which I'm going to come back to, I experienced exactly that because I tried to bring my views into the group, and I wasn't liked yeah. for that. You know, I got all sorts of strange looks. It was a real group think. I felt the pressure to conform. I didn't conform, but I did feel that pressure. And I realized what was going on is that the college and the church was trying to keep this broad church together, you know, with liberals and evangelicals all together. And they weren't concerned about any of us as individuals, what we had to contribute, other than we would serve to keep the church together. That was it.
1: Well, the unity in Scripture is in doctrine. It's in the Word, but this is unity for unity's sake. So you have to put doctrine aside. That's why I just say today you come into the church, and you open up the Word of God, and a fight breaks out. (laughs) They're not interested in the Word. They're interested in your opinion of the Word of God because your opinion carries the feelings that we all have in common.
0: Sure, there are churches like this. You're right, yeah.
1: And so the Antichrist can rule with Christians around. They didn't kill Christians in the Soviet system. They killed believers. Because a believer has a paradigm, the Word of God says, it is written, it is written, it is written, and that causes division. And if you want unity, you've got to get rid of that. Unity means we're successful, and of course the world says, okay, now success is, is the purpose that we have in life, you know, to augment pleasure, to make this a better world to live in but the gospel isn't really that message at all the gospel is is a message of witnessing and the greek word for witness is martyrius. now you wouldn't say well somebody on a cross is a, is a success story and yet that's god's message is if you can stay faithful endure to the end i tell people enduring is not a dopamine moment it's like changing diapers uh it, it, you you endure the, the rejection, you endure the shame, you endure uh, – by the way, rejection is one of the most painful experiences in life. That's what you experience in that group meeting. Yes, indeed. Because if you don't work with a group to this common-ism, then you you are an outcast. You are worthless. And the warning in the counseling books is if I can't bring you into participation, I can harm you. It will actually have a detrimental mecha- effect to you, and people will leave these meetings depressed. And people have actually – Bethel, Maine was the first training lab here in the States. There are ten national training labs in the United States. Uh, I call them Marxist training camps. When they first started, this was so just raw. And There's a book called Human Relations in Curriculum Change. I call it a cookbook on humans. Everything is in that one book, uh, 1950, edited by Kenneth Benet. But there were people coming out of those sessions, going to their motels. These were superintendents of schools killing themselves. And so the NEA was having people sign a you know a waiver saying that if they committed suicide, the institution wouldn't be held accountable for it. Now we're so sophisticated that you can actually take people into this without them uh, getting to a uh, process or going out and killing themselves.
0: To some people, that could sound exaggerated, but I have to say, when I was going through some of these processes at the college, I did feel really quite depressed yeah. because I felt as if my personality was being overridden. And I was being treated like some kind of, I don't know, um, somebody who wasn't really, wasn't really sane, you know, because I, I thought certain things were true and other things were false, and that was just not acceptable.
1: Well, we, we – in a traditional mindset, there's right and wrong. Yeah. And we don't think that there's another paradigm out there that says there is no right or wrong. And so you're caught in this new environment, this new world order where there is no right or wrong, and you lose your identity. And see, there's no identity in self. That's why people kill themselves. Identity is either found in one above the father, or the collective, the group. And that the conscience is always one. You have two. That's dialogue. See, two is the village, and so they want to move you from the one God to the to the group think. What does this? These words, by the way, society, community, they're enigmas. Now, we say neighborhood. You can think of Fred down there cutting wood and Joe over here, he likes building buildings. And so in neighborhood, you have this understanding. It's a biblical word. But society or community, those are words that came in the 1500s, and those are social-oriented. Those are dialectic structured words. Now, getting back to the seduction and the power of this, as Rogers writes in his book on becoming a person, a therapist's view of psychotherapy, he says, we can choose to use our growing knowledge – of this process, to enslave people in ways never dreamed of before, depersonalizing them, controlling them by means so carefully selected that they will perhaps never be aware of their loss of personhood. He he writes about Walden, too. He says, now that we know how positive reinforcement works, which is the dialogue, if I ask you how you feel, what you think, you're going to participate. By the way, if you, if you have this traditional paradigm, this patriarchal paradigm, way of communicating, is a not, and you talk to the culture today, the culture's changed. They will glaze over. Five minutes they're gone. It's because they can't handle preaching and teaching. They can only handle how they feel and what they think.
0: Yes. And as you mentioned before, this what's been called the postmodern turn has really played into this in a big way, hasn't it?
1: Oh, it's it's it used to be you could go someplace to get away from this. This is little communication made this global. It, it, there's nowhere you can get away from it. Uh, except to the Lord. You know, that, that's the good news. The bad news is that we're sitting in this cesspool of abomination, rapidly descending into the abyss. Then he writes, he says, we can be more deliberate and hence more successful in our cultural design. We can achieve a sort of control over those which are controlled, though they are following a code which is more scrupulous than ever was the case under the old system. In other words, we have more rules and regulations than ever before. Then he says, nevertheless, they feel free. See, feel free. They are doing what they want to do. They're, Eve, you know, what do you want to do? Oh, I want to touch that tree. Not what they're forced to do. See, that's the source of the tremendous power of positive reinforcement. There's no restraint and no revolt. You know, I'm not going to say, hey, Dad, you know, he says, well, you don't have to take the garbage. Oh, get out. I'm going to, I I refuse to listen to that. I want to take the garbage out. No, we, when, when we're given freedom to be ourselves outside of God, we're not going to revolt against that. See? By a careful design, he says, we control not the final behavior, but the inclination to behavior, the motives, desires, the wishes. The curious thing is that in that case, the question of freedom never arises. If we have the power or authority to establish the necessary conditions, the predicted behaviors will follow. That's why that facilitator has to stay in that room. I call it the Marxist waltz. They'll push you two steps until you start squealing, and then they'll step back one, and you'll think you just won. You didn't. You lost a step. Then they'll push you two steps further, and you'll squeal, and then they'll back off one step, and you'll relax and say, oh, we won. No, you just lost another step. But in all that time, you think you're free, and you're not. You're losing your freedom.
0: And the facilitator always plays this part of the the very friendly, cuddly character who's making you feel really good in the group but all the time is actually manipulating the whole situation.
1: What he's doing is he's playing the role of your father, but he's allowing you to attack him. He'll, He'll allow you to question him, and he is changing how you're going to respond to authority. You're no longer going to respect authority. You're going to question authority. You question authority. Question. You know, there, there's no absolute out there who can tell me what's right and wrong anymore. That's where we've come as a culture.
0: And a number of times you've brought up this business of the new world order. Do you feel that there are concerns who are
1: well, the system itself. I, I tell people you can get rid of the UN. The UN doesn't allow any decisions without a consensus. You have to have a group of people together do the thing, and and then you come up with a general statement that comes through dialogue, which means it's godless. So you can t- say it's religious, but it's not. It's a it's a it's a humanist religion. In other words, it's come through human feelings and thoughts, and and it has negated any role playing. Does that? There is no there is no godly authority. There's no righteousness in role playing. All federal agents in the United States are going through role playing. And so even if you, you're going to church now you're in a church, all of a sudden you're in a Bible study going, I feel and I think. What do you think? Why do you feel about this verse? Not studying and memorizing and allowing the Holy Spirit to bring you in a conviction. No, now you can change it so you can feel better about it yourself and be less offensive to others. And then you go – if you're a you know, federal agent, then you go into these trainings. They're one and the same thing. So that becomes the norm. So you don't see the person as an individual anymore. Marx would call it ether of the brain. And what what he did in the Holy Family, he says, oh, there's there's, uh, apples and oranges and almonds and raisins. They're different fruit, and you recognize them as individuals. But if I can get you in a room where we can talk about what they have in common, when you leave there, it will no longer be individual fruits. You can never see the individual fruits in themselves. You will always see them through the fruit this collective sense of fruit mm. and what Hegel was saying is that the children raised under the father are parochial they're, they're isolated they evaluate everything in the community through their father's eyes if I can take those children put them in a group setting group grade if I can put them in a class of 20 that's class consciousness now they're conscious there are others that feel just as dissatisfied as, as they are against their parents and they therefore are allowed to freely be themselves open-ended in other words, we can talk about anything non-directive, which means I'm going to tell you what's right and wrong. Uh, that, that's Genesis 3, 1 through 6. The fathers aren't like that. They're not open in and non-directive. But that child experience goes through what Warren is called the experiential chasm. There's this environment where they're now allowed to be themselves, freed from parental restraint. When they come home, they will treat their parents not only as rational, because they're not in tune with the times, the moments, but they're also irrelevant. You know, I tell people the French Revolution, the poem came out of there. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. You try to put your child back together again after they've been in my classroom, where I've liberated them uh, from parental authority, and that's what happened in the garden. I mean, here, here, God confronts Adam and Eve. And what are they doing? They're justifying. They're doing the what's well, not my fault. You know, it's her fault. And she goes, "It's not my fault." It's that smiling lizard over there. And these all facilitators come in smiling. They have your best interest in you. Uh, and and if you're not on your guard, discernment doesn't tell you what's what's wrong. It just says something's wrong. And it's up to you to seek to the answer. And you're not going to find it through the facilitator because he's going to his. The whole role of facilitation is to move you away from this top down. System, This patriarchal paradigm that we find from Genesis to Revelation in the Word of God.
0: Yeah, one thing you, you, you mentioned in the, in the uh, interviews that I've heard by you already is you talk about Bloom's taxonomy. Right. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about how this kind of thinking actually got into the educational system.
1: Well, John Dewey already had it in the system, but he, his philosophical language was getting in the way, and he didn't quite have the praxis put together. What Bloom did was he, he, he built his taxonomies on the Marxists, uh, Adorno and Fromm uh, and others, but those two, their works were, were essential to it. Uh, the first book came out in '56, uh, 1956, uh, Taxonomy of Educational Objectives, book one, Cognitive Domain, Cognition. And in there he says this is a psychological classification system. I mean, which is illegal, by the way. No, nobody has a right to do psychological analysis on your child with the intent of changing without you knowing. And yet that was the whole purpose of the book. We thought it was cognition, just learning facts. No, that's not what it was. It was this process. And then there is page 32. He says, we recognize the point of view. In other words, we're going to bring in the classroom the point of view that truth and knowledge is only relative and that there are no lasting truths for all times and all places. Uh, Bloom simply paraphrased Karl Marx, who said, in the eyes of the dialectic philosophy, nothing is absolute, nothing is sacred. And so there we have the merging of the two. In concept, And then, then he, he, he reveals in that first book that this will destabilize the students in the classroom. The second book comes out in 64, The Effective Domain. Now we're going to bring feelings and make them equal with facts. In other words, the child's feelings out there in the field is just as important as the father's commands, which destroys the father, by the way. On page 55, he says uh, what we call good teaching is using – to help the teacher to attain effective objectives, in other words, bring feeling into the room by challenging the student's fixed beliefs. And I ask the question, who gave those children those fixed beliefs and who gave educators the right to create an environment where those children would feel safe in challenging those fixed beliefs? And yet that's the purpose of the taxonomies, which is simply I was trained to map the room, map your children who are traditional, who are transitional, feelings-based, who are transformational, who are the thinkers. I'll break your children up into a group grade, uh, one traditional because I want to show everybody how to convert them or get rid of them, uh, mostly transitional, a couple transitional kids' feelings. That's the moving in the movement in the room in that class or in that group grade. And then the, the future leader of the world.
0: Movement in the sense of moving from one change. opinion change,
1: changing from a changing from a right wrong way of thinking to where there is no right or wrong. See, because th- that's plurality now, not duality. Duality is right and wrong. Now we have plurality.
0: I'm going to back you up on that because one of the ways in which we were graded in that theological college was, well, yep, yeah, if, if you if you got it right, you got a grade for that. But if you had if you changed, you 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 could see that your personality was changing to this more communitarian one, then you got a grade for that as well.
1: By participating in the change, uh, you change your belief and values by participation in the group. Now, Bloom says on page 91 that this is Pandora's box. Now, that's a box full of evils, and once you open it, you can't close it. And he's admitting in his book that every teacher, in the, not only in the States but around the world, 1971, a million of those textbooks were published for the communist Chinese education system. Now, they're the foundation for teacher certification in England. They're the foundation for teacher certification all around the world. And the objective was to change the way we communicate. We're now communicating through our feelings. A minister friend of mine says, these people aren't intellectuals. They're emotionals. Because once you pin them down on the truth, they become very emotional. They will do character assassination. See, they cannot handle the truth because the truth has always been the enemy.
0: And you say you say this this is actually a global phenomenon. Yes. So it's, this is an ideal way, then, isn't it, to get rid of the idea of nationality, the idea of right. one, one religion. Yes, yeah, sovereignty, religions yeah. being true or false, or moral values being true or false, and just to play into this globalist ideology.
1: Right. And and Marx said all the educators themselves must be educated. And so when this Frankfurt School ideology, this, this Institute of Social Research, these Marxists, then became embraced in our universities in the education system, then it became the foundation for curriculum development. And in fact, Bloom on age, page 83 in this effective domain – now Kraft, David Crathwell is the leading editor in that, so if you're looking for it, you'll have to look at his name. But he, he says this is caused conflict between the parents and the children. And all of a sudden you realize as you're reading this material, it has no other purpose than to create an environment which will divide the children from the parents. You have to take the adolescent society, uh, this age of you know liberation, free it from parental restraint, where all those hormones are going on, and reattach them to a world of eros. And by changing this classroom environment, you can change everything, because all of culture comes out of that cultural experience in that classroom.
0: And this is why so many parents, of course, are removing their children from state schools, isn't it?
1: Well, the homeschooling is working but it's not. By the way, every teacher, since they're certified on this, they go into Christian schools. You you have the same problem. Christian schools are even accredited by the same taxonomy. And so when you homeschool, though, if the children's heart is not right before the Lord, they're just looking at the door. And these kids actually will then go to college in half a semester. They're, they're smarter than the public school kids because they're actually one-on-one. They're dealing with adults all the time, this system. They're, they're inculcating facts. And so the colleges and universities love to have them. But it's easy to change them in half a year and be flaming Marxists. And what makes them more lethal is that the public school kids learn this is all just a game. And they're not really interested in changing the world so much as just what they can get out of it in the process of change. But these kids see their own siblings under their parents as oppressed, and they will dedicate their life to go back and destroy that family structure and liberate those children from that old-fashioned way of thinking. So there's a kick to this if you're not careful, if the heart is not changed.
0: Sure, and we really need schools that really understand this and know what's going on.
1: And Bloom actually writes warning in the taxonomy. He said some of these teachers might actually pick up on what we're doing, and therefore they're eva- able to eva- – like we're mapping the classroom. They can map us because we've defined ourselves. And they therefore – I've actually met superintendents of schools in in the states that uh, – Christian schools who will not hire any teacher who has been under that taxonomizing Have
0: system. do you? Say. Yeah.
1: yeah. And so they had a doctorate it, and they said, no way, I don't want them like being in a room full of smoke. When you leave, you have this residue left on you. They, they made sure that these teachers were facts-based, very didactic, and therefore cleansed the school system that they were over from this process. Of course, it's always there because it's our human nature, but the system itself, the top-down system, remained in place.
0: And we have to make a distinction between critical thinking, which is fine, and this kind of what I often refer to as this hermeneutica suspicion, as the postmodernists call it. And there is a distinction between those, isn't there?
1: Right, because Bloom deals with – Higher-order thinking skills. That's critical thinking. Now, we can do that on rocks, plants, and animals. Everything was science. But when we change that to man, we materialize him. Because science deals only with material things. And that's what they did, was they set up this behavioral science, which demythologized man, according to their their verbiage, uh, liberated man from any voice that was not of nature. And so that was that was the intent of all this. So it was how to create an environment where just human nature would be allowed into the room. Anything that was not of human nature, they wouldn't necessarily attack. It's just irrelevant. See, and that's your frustration. You, you can open your mouth, speak the truth, and then nobody really hears it. They don't necessarily attack. Let's be positive. But then you leave, and you, there's a sense that there's something wrong with me. See, and so that was... That, that's the key because we all want approval. It's in our nature. That's called group dynamics. We want approval. So these cho- I tell parents, okay, you want to send your child into that system, be a witness? I pray to God your child's a witness because the word witness means martyrious. My role as a facilitator is to martyr your child. But if your child refused to put down the shield of faith, you can never defend your faith. Your faith defends you. And if your child puts down the faith... In other words, dad says to get that group grade, you, the parent, sacrificed your child to the fires of Moloch. You sacrificed your child to the beast. We are to inculcate. and Now, that doesn't mean that the child, you know, you, they can be raised in a secular environment and they need to hear the, hear the word of the Lord or hear, hear the gospel. But they have a system in that traditional system. When they hear the word of God, it makes sense. In other words, they know there's right and wrong. But if we have a culture raised up in this dialectic classroom dialectic workplace, dialectic church, when they hear the Word of God, they will never hear it. Having ears they cannot you know, hear and eyes they cannot see. Mark said we must have human eyes and human ears. And that's what we have become, is a culture that can only see through human eyes, human ears. Again, when you're sharing the truth today with people, they glaze over because it's a different language. You're speaking to them with a language that they cannot relate with. You are irrational and irrelevant. And they've just tuned out.
0: That's right. They think you're irrational because you're speaking in terms of absolutes, and that's just not acceptable. That's
1: <laughs> and it brings them to accountability, personal accountability. See, nobody wants to be personally accountable, and yet that's the Bible, and yet we, have re- we can use the Bible in the church, but you open it up, and all of a sudden it's, well, how do you feel about this verse? What do you think about this verse? And we just destroyed accountability before God because now God is subject to my feelings and my thoughts. It's easy to do because it's so much a part of us. I mean, even even knowing this, when you walk into those meetings, there is still this draw that part of us just hates that rejection and wants to be approved by everybody in that room.
0: There's one question I I wanted to ask you. It's a bit of a long question, so can you bear with me? Okay. What what I'm doing here at The Mind Renewed is in some ways I feel in step with what's come to be known as the truth movement, which I characterise as this largely internet-based grassroots movement of ordinary people that's trying to challenge authority, particularly government and corporate authority, but in the interests of justice and transparency. But what concerns me about this so-called truth movement is that very often it can advocate a rejection of all authority, just because it is authority, and all tradition, just because it is tradition, irrespective of whether it's good or bad which, to my mind, obviously, as a Christian, I, I consider to be a, a real mistake. I mean, as a Christian, I don't just accept authority unthinkingly, but I've come to believe that Christ is who he says he is, and so I've therefore put myself under the authority of God, if you see what I mean. But to my mind, then, to say that all authority and all tradition are bad in principle is is nonsense so what extent do you feel that this radical distrust of all authority and all tradition comes from this very dialectical power game that you've been describing
1: well it's really a lie because there's no synthesis i mean that's a that's the deception that's the illusion that we can free ourselves from authority structure because they even become authority in themselves yeah see and so they've deceived themselves now romans 13 one says yield to the higher power incorrect uh, the Greek word is not dunamos. It's the word authority in the Greek word there. Uh, so if I have to yield to higher power, I have to do what Hitler tells me to do. Now, you know, my conscience will bother me, but, you know, that's the scripture yield to higher power. But if I do the correct Greek and then translate to the right word authority, I can say, well, Mr. Hitler, you know, I'm not going to do that. Now, you can kill me, but I'm going to die with a clear conscience. So these words are very important. Jesus said, call no man father on earth. And yet he turns around, and he says, we must honor our father and mother. Now, dad and mom might be tyrants. Now, they're not perfect, but the office is. So I'm really honoring the office that God has created for them in. The judge might be a tyrant, but the office isn't. There's, there's a purpose, there's an honor to that office, if it's run correctly. So it's this battle that we have within us that we want to prove we're in, but we have to be like the apostles who said, you know, we choose to serve God rather than man. If there's a conflict... Between uh, this man and God's word, I have to always go on the side of God's word. But if there is not, then I will you know, obey that. Here, Here's what happens, though, is an institution forms for the sake of the individuals. But then it takes on a life of its own. And when institutions take on a life of its own, they end up sacrificing the individuals for the institution. And that's what we're seeing. And that's what Marx's ether of the brain. Is Once we find our identity in the institution rather than in Christ himself, rather than in God himself, then we begin to actually use that institution to remove those who are in Christ.
0: No, I know what a lot of people don't understand is that the essence of Christianity is this relationship, this loving relationship with the Creator. It, it is not primarily an institution, and yet so many people see that, it, oh, it's the institution of
1: the church. And we have, we have lost – the, the Protestant Reformation is gone. It is now – it's no longer an understanding of priesthood of all believers. I am personally accountable for God. Uh, and, and what that does, if you have a fellowship that has that attitude, wow, that's a powerful fellowship. That, that, that you can break it up and like Jesus was arrested with the disciples there. Why, why did he – he could have been arrested anywhere. But it was – the message is with me, you can – You. the institution is alive in me. It's not in the institution itself. See, and they scattered, and then he came in, you know, through the Spirit, and through his word, we as, where two or three are gathered in his name. That is the definition of the church. That's a, uh, I will build my church on this rock. What's the rock? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, what's his first com- command to Satan? You know, man is not delivered by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. So Christ in you and Christ in me, we come together in his word, humble before him. That's where he is. It's not in a building.
0: Well, you you have a website, don't you? Could you right. direct people to that website and say because you've got a lot of information there?
1: Oh, I start with twelve pages, end up with one hundred and twenty. People say those aren't articles; those are books. But <laughs> but I get the quotes out there because my, you know what I share is my opinion. But I'm I'm sharing the quotes here here here. Study these and know what these guys are saying, so you would be wise in decisions you make. It's uh, authorityresearch.com. AuthorityResearch.com, all small letters. And and again, I just uh, I write a lot of articles on this. I, a lot of us redundant. It's the same thing. You know, it's just a battle between Genesis three one through six, getting rid of Romans twelve and or Romans seven and Hebrews twelve. The Hebrews twelve is the Father's authority, and Romans seven is the conflict we have because of that, the guilty conscience. I do that which I don't want to do, and I don't do that which I want to do. If you can get rid of the Father, you can get rid of the guilty conscience, and we can have a one world system.
0: Yep. Thank you ever so much for this conversation. I do need to wrap it up now, but that was a, was a fantastically interesting conversation. Thanks ever so much.
1: All right. Well, thanks, Julian. Lord bless you.
0: And you.